Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we slather your brain in a sweet, sweet wash of science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature beauty and the geek, social experiment, bird brains, rejection addiction, and cold, cold antimatter. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond. <laughs> Our brains are more like birds than we thought. For more than a century, neuroscientists believed that the brains of humans and other mammals differed from the brains of other animals, such as birds, and were, presumably, better. This belief was based, in part, on the readily evident physical structure of the neocortex, the region of the brain responsible for complex cognitive behaviors in mammals. A new study, however, by researchers on Harvey Carton's team at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, finds that a comparable region in the brains of chickens, concerned with analyzing auditory inputs, is constructed similarly to that of mammals. The brains of mammals have long been presumed to be highly evolved and more developed than the brains of other animals, in part based on the mammalian neocortex features of the cells. They're layered. It's a process called lamination. The layered cells are connected by radially arrayed columns of other cells, forming functional modules characterized by neuronal types and specific connections. Early studies of homologous regions in non-mammalian brains had found no similar arrangement, leading to the presumption that neocortical cells and circuits in mammals were similar in nature. In the latest research, Carton used modern sophisticated imaging technologies including a highly sensitive tracer, to map a region of the chicken's brain. They discovered that the avian cortical region was also composed of laminated layers of cells linked by narrow radial columns of different types of cells with extensive interconnections that form microcircuits that are virtually identical to those found in the mammalian cortex. This research can help us answer some long-standing questions. Namely, where did all of this complex circuitry come from and when did it first evolve? Carton's research supplies the beginning of an answer. It comes from an ancestor common to both mammals and birds, which would date back to at least 300 million years. Checking in with our friends at CERN, the physicists working in the research lab on the border of Switzerland and France have generated the coldest particles of antimatter ever recorded. The team cooled down antiprotons to temperatures colder than the surface of Pluto, as low as minus 443 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just 17 degrees above absolute zero. Now, you might be wondering, why are they doing this? The physicists are studying cold antimatter to ultimately gleam insights into why the universe is made of matter rather than antimatter. In order to study this problem in depth, the team would need to combine cold antiprotons with an electron's antimatter partner, which is a positron, to form cool atoms of antihydrogen. In this way, physicists will be able to hold the neutral atoms in magnetic traps and analyze their behavior more carefully. Romantic rejection stimulates areas of brain involved in motivation, reward, and addiction. 
the pain and the anguish of rejection by a romantic partner may be the result of activity in parts of the brain associated with motivation, reward, and addiction cravings, according to a study published in the July issue of the Journal of Neuropsychology. The study's findings could have implications for understanding why feelings related to romantic rejection can be so hard to control, and it may provide insights into the extreme behaviors associated with rejection, such as stalking, homicide, and suicide. These behaviors are pervasive in many cultures throughout the world. In the study, researchers used fMRI, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging, to record brain activity in 15 college-age heterosexual men and women who had recently been rejected by their partners, but reported that they were still intensely in love. All participants said that they spent more than 85% of their waking hours thinking about the person who rejected them, and that they yearned for the person to return and they wanted to get back together. Now, participants each viewed a photograph of their former partners. Then they completed a simple math exercise, such as counting backwards from a random four-digit number by seven, to distract them from their romantic thoughts. Finally, they viewed a photograph of a familiar neutral person, such as a friend or a roommate. The researchers found that looking at photographs of the participants' former partners stimulated several key areas of the participants' brain, more than looking at photos of the neutral person. Now, those areas happened to be the ventral tegmental area of the midbrain, which controls motivation and reward, and is best known for feelings of romantic love. It also stimulated the nucleus accumbens and the orbital frontal prefrontal cortex, which are associated with craving and addiction, as can be frequently seen in imaging of cocaine users, and the insular cortex and anterior cingulate, which are associated with physical pain and distress. The researchers note that their findings supply evidence that the passion of romantic love is a goal-oriented, motivational state rather than a specific emotion, and that the results are consistent with the hypothesis that romantic rejection is actually a specific form of addiction. The data help explain why the beloved is so difficult to give up. Ah, but love Lawrence can have a little bit of hope. The researchers also found that the greater the number of days passed since the rejection, the less activity there was in these areas studied. reality TV show Beauty and the Geek claims to be a social experiment where they get geeky scientific males and they get socially acceptable, socially adept, beautiful models and they get them together and they sort of play them off against each other, supposedly. That's the claim and they've been running an Australian version because when you buy Beauty and the Beast you get the rights to your local version and you have to do it. So they are, they're onto their second round and we've seen the requests for applicants. A bitter and twisted Lachlan Watmore with his response.
Well, thank you, Ian. Uh, as Ian mentioned, last week we at Diffusion had the honour of being invited to put forward candidates for the second season of the Australian version of the TV show Beauty and the Geek. An email from the producers of the show was forwarded to us from the Australian Science Communicators asking for, quote, smart single males between the ages of 18 to 30 who are experts in their own specialised field. This can range from mathematicians, scientists, physicists, geologists, historians, musicians, chemists, poets and literary lovers to guys who excel in puzzles, games or computers, unquote. Beauty and the Geek, in case you don't know, is a reality TV show where a man and a woman are paired up. The man's academic credentials, chess size, computer collection and interest in science fiction are inversely proportional to the woman's. She, in contrast, is portrayed as materialistic and superficial. However, she does have excellent social skills and doesn't feign affection. She is also described as beautiful, quote-unquote, at least according to the standards of the show. By the same standards, he is portrayed as, at best, plain in his sexual attractiveness. Together, they pool the resources of their various talents to face a series of challenges in competition with other pairs of geeks and beauties. So, for example, in one challenge, he will build a kickboxing robot to get them out of danger, and in another, she will teach him how to do his own Brazilian. I've got bad news for Beauty and the Geek. The last of the geeks fled this show years ago, or at least since Ian Wolfe chopped his ponytail off. Today's diffusion is the most sexy, sensual, socially adept, sweetly sinful, and let's face it, just sweet people it's been my pleasure to know. Mark West's porn star Mo that sprouts every late spring. Pat Ruby's eyes like calming pools. Victoria Bond and her face like Anne Hathaway, only cuter. The shy grin and velvet voice that has won Ian Wolfe the hearts of millions. The only diffusioner I could recommend for Beauty and the Geek is myself. And quite frankly, the only show that could truly benefit from my appearance would have to be called Beauty and the Slob. Now, in my defence, I have the complete Thunderbirds and UFO DVD collections, but only because those guys are so funny when you're stoned. Isn't it just awful when scientists are sexy? Science dudes are meant to be geeks. It's the payoff. Some folks are smart and weak. Others are stupid and strong. The strong protect the weak and the weak manage the strong. Or am I being simplistic? Edwin Hubble was a man I doubt I would have liked much because he was one of those god-awful people who was blessed with everything. Looks, athleticism, brains, social skills, you name it, he could do it. Evan Schrodinger had extraordinary sexual success, even for a quantum physicist. Wolfgang Pauli, Leo Zillard, Hans Bethe, Isaac Newton and Jacob Bronowski all worked as high-class male escorts when away from the lab. Well, no, they didn't, but I would like to tell you a true story. When I was at school, I had a friend. Let's call him Scotty. Scotty was the most unassuming guy you could ever meet. Look up Meek in the dictionary and you'll find a picture of him. He was highly intelligent and went on to study both science and law, achieving distinction in both. But his extraordinary humility didn't advertise this. He was small, barely over five feet tall, and pretty weedy physically. His shoulders disappeared inside his shirt, his hairline was already receding. Teenage acne had left his face cratered and his teeth were a bit crooked. However, Scotty had one outstanding physical attribute. He was hung like a prize bull. I must confess I never saw the organ in question. A mate told me about it after seeing Scotty under the shower after Jim, halfway down his thigh if I remember correctly. Now, Scotty was religious and probably kept his virginity until his wedding night, and my mate and I would wonder what would have been going through his new bride's head as they undressed. Could it have been the question, what makes a man a man? So, I'm sorry, Beauty and the Geek, but you're out of luck. As I said, I can only put myself forward as a candidate, 
Now, I've got the Star Wars wallpaper, but there are pictures of Scotty's willy drawn between C-3PO's legs. And my Battlestar Galactica bedspread is now the property of the dog. The good news is that I'm a 44-year-old virgin, but the bad news is I don't know anyone who can tell me what the words beautiful or intelligent actually mean. Sorry about that. And we also have a stunned and resentful Victoria Bond. So as Ian said, I was rather stunned and resentful. This doozy of an email floated through my inbox and I sat on it for a couple of days before deciding that really the producers of the show should probably get a response from from this. You know, I, I know I'm, I'm not a valid applicant, not being male, but here was my response nevertheless. Hello, producer. As a scientist and producer of the Diffusion Science Radio Show, I have just received your recruiting email for Beauty and the Geek. I'll be honest, I was both stunned and resentful. The premise of the show is insulting on two levels. Firstly, and perhaps more obviously, the typecasting of women that occurs on your show. As a young girl growing up, I cannot tell you how often I was told that women were not as good at math as men. Every day, young girls are told over and over that the hard scientists are just not suited to the weaker sex, and that women are better at communicating, etc., etc., etc. I was constantly complimented on my looks, but never on my brains growing up. Teenage girls are often pressured to dumb themselves down to appear more attractive to their men. Which brings me to point number two. Your show is about as insulting to men as it is to women. Why must highly intelligent correlate with socially inept? My non-peer review observational study would indicate that it's not the case. I think that we need to be setting better examples than this. Rather than playing up hackneyed and dated stereotypes, I'd like to see them blown out of the water. I'd like you to show me fantastic, charismatic, intelligent women. Show me successful women that aren't defined as either a sex kitten or a total bitch. I dare you, I have not seen this yet. Show me women who have conversations that don't relate to men on TV. Show me women who refuse to accept a salary that's 75% that of their male counterpart doing exactly the same job. In other words, I expect TV to inspire me, not to bore me and play into stereotypes that have just been played out in 2010. Thank you. Sincerely, Victoria Bond of Diffusion Science Radio. We also have Mark West here in the studio. So, Mark, have you seen this show? I have. I've seen uh, the American version. Uh, I think I've seen maybe even... I'm not exactly a religious watcher of the program, but I have spotted the American version and I've seen... Uh, the previous Australian version. In fact, uh, Xenogene, who was one of the cult heroes of the first season, I did physics with back at university. Uh, He seemed like a nice enough sort of guy. But uh, yeah, he was a bit of a cult hero in the first first series. And I I actually thought maybe I might play devil's advocate on this uh, to defend the show, but I, I really can't. Can I ask you a question? Since you knew one of the guys who was in the series and you watched it, did it seem like he was at all scripted and directed or did it really seem like it was just him? I really didn't watch the show all that much. Mm. Uh, 
It, well, it, it could have been him. I mean, they, they had them all coming in on segues at the start of the show and everything, which is obviously uh, ludicrous and set up. I mean, Xenogene was a he was a nice enough sort of guy. I think he kind of played Dungeons and Dragons, so he did fit a bit of a geek stereotype. I, I think that's the thing. I think with reality TV shows, you know, in these unreal situations, it all comes down to casting. You know, there are geeks, and then there are really geeks, and then there are, you know, beautiful people, and then there are airhead idiots. And if you choose the right ones then and, and put them in the right types of scenarios, then you, you will get a particular, you know, sure. coming out of the oven, so to speak. If I start dissing you, please don't be offended. It's just a habit, and it makes me feel good. If I take the piss out of you, well, it's nothing personal. It's just a hunger that I need to feed. I go to a party with all my friends. We bitch our little hearts out in sweet revenge. You see, I got this anger and nowhere to throw it. You look so together and you look like you know it. I try to squash these feelings down But sometimes they won't be denied I could protest when the bitching comes around But then I'd be called a hippie and I'd be crucified So I just bitch That's what I do I bitch Just like you I bitch Ah, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on, let's all bitch. I love the feeling of importance that I get when I make some cynical remark. I demonstrate my intellect and my great inner strength by ripping someone else's dreams apart. I got this feeling that it's kind of wrong, but oh, the short-term satisfaction and it really makes me feel like I belong And like I've done something without taking action I try to squash these feelings down But sometimes they won't be denied I could protest when the bitching comes around But then I'd be called a hippie and I'd be crucified So I just bitch that's what I do, I bitch Just like you, I bitch Ah, oh, come on, come on, come on, come on Let's all bitch Are you ready? Here we go She said this and he did that Did you see her dress? It makes her look fat She did him and he did her And that's not all, it gets worse Let's rip it a bit, let's pull him down Come on, it's the easiest game in town Did you see that film? I just can't believe He's the worst actor I've ever seen He used to be good till he got all the fame The same thing happened to what's his name I just can't believe it just goes to show It was on the cards, you know I told you so It's the government, it's the GST I just love the bitch, come on, join me, let's bitch Come on now, bitch. Huh. I try to squash these feelings down, but sometimes they won't be denied. I could protest when the bitching comes around, but then I'd be called a hippie and I'd be crucified. Yeah. So I just bitch. That's what I do. I bitch. Just like you, bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
And that was The Bitching, from the album Likely Stories by Brett Robin Wood. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And Victoria, you've got a story about evidence-based medicine in Britain. That's right, Ian. Just recently, the NHS in the UK has deemed homeopathy not to be a treatment that they're going to be offering or subsidizing. Now, it was overwhelmingly in favor of not supporting homeopathy, and that makes sense when you actually look at the studies that show the effectiveness of homeopathy, which is nil. Homeopathy is basically the placebo effect. So, in a sense, obviously, the UK shouldn't be subsidizing this extremely expensive treatment that is basically water. But in another sense, I think it's worth discussing the role of placebo in modern medicine today, because what placebo is, is a measurable effect without any side effects, because there is no active ingredient. What do you guys think about that? Well, I just want to quickly jump in on the the no side effects. New scientists did something a month or two ago about the nocebo effect, Mm. where in fact you can get side effects if they're suggested to you. Really? Yes. I had not heard that. That's very interesting. Yeah, it it really seems to be that it's neurological, it's the neurologically strong side of the power of suggestion taken to its extreme. And and this is is the interesting thing. I don't think that placebos have to be as expensive as homeopathy to work. There are arguments put forward with a straight face that the more expensive the treatment, the more you believe it will work, therefore the more it will work. So therefore, outrageously expensive placebo treatments are good practice. Well, it's like the the idea that a big red pill that's a placebo is more effective than a little blue pill that's a placebo. And here's Mitchell and Webb's look at homeopathy. <laughs> what have we got? Yeah, broken arms, suspected internal injuries, severe contusions to the head. Okay, these move fast. Premier solution of Arnica Montana, stat. Strength? One part in a million. I'm sure, it looks serious. You're right, we need to strengthen the dose. One part in ten million. On it, Doctor. Here you go, one. Nothing we can't handle. Get me some wolfsbane, also known as monkshood in here. And a whole tray of flower remedies. Whoa, the chakras are fading. We need some crystals. Nurse, fresh me some purple tinted quartz. Right. Make that aquamarine quartz. Good call. Okay, he's stabilizing. Now, does anybody know what sort of car hit him? Blue Fort Mondeo, apparently. Right, get me a bit of Blue Fort Mondeo, put it in water, shake it, dilute it, shake it again, dilute it again, do some more shaking, dilute it some more, and then put three drops on his tongue. If that doesn't cure him, I don't know what will. You should have a look at this, Simon. What is it? I don't think this poor chap's got long to live. Why not? His lifeline. Very short. <laughs> but his horoscope's not too clever either. Sagittarius. Brace yourself for a surprise. Things are about to change for you. Certainly are, unless... Wait. What? We could try drawing a bit more lifeline on with Byro. It would never work. You got a better idea? Let's see what happens. (laughs) Time of death, 3.34. Ish. Day. I just can't stand losing them. It happens. I don't know. Sometimes I think a trace solution of deadly nightshade or a statistically negligible quantity of arsenic just 
isn't enough. That's crazy talk, Simon. Okay, so you kill the odd patient with cancer or heart disease, or bronchitis, flu, chickenpox, or measles. But when someone comes in with a vague sense of unease, or a touch of the nerves, or even just more money than sense, you'll be there for them. Bottle of basically just water in one hand, and a huge invoice in the other. I suppose you're right. And that was The History of the Concept of the Soul by the Mr. T Experience from Night Shift at the Thrill Factory. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, wild passionate praise, game show ideas, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Lachlan Watmore, Victoria Bond, Mark West. Diffusion was produced by Lachlan Watmore in the studios of 2SER Sydney with technical support by Mark West. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.